0: way to start a podcast. Hey, party people. You ready to get, in, get down? Me too. Let's start this podcast. Just episode 73. Boogie down. You're listening, You're listening to, the to the Creative Riding, riding Motorcycle, motorcycle podcast. podcast. Pop a up beer, a beer and, and throw an, an earbud earbuds. in your ear. Now, now here's, here's- Listen, I can barely tie a shoe, let alone figure out this thing. After and isn't that funny how people say not to be an asshole, but I've seen to be an asshole. My skin met the asphalt, but these new ki- new ways kit my... Alright, a couple of blurs. Oh, Whatever they do with cocaine. The victim. I mean, I mean guests. It's usually such a horribly set up but they like how it looks. It's a cafe racer with alloy manks, racing tank, and clip-ons and all that jazz. The Soma actually was purchased by uh, the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. Yeah. You know, after this interview, I sound like a fat, hairy, bearded slob. Um, so I'm familiar with the long hours and the uncomfortable seat. Kangaroos are just leaping down the street every day Um, right, technically all chaps are assholes, right? Or else you just do love pants. I I don't have it perfected I have to stop talking shit The more I talk it, the more my bike messes up My wife's like, you're 41 and started a race career I'm like, yeah, and it's amazing Yes, I am guest number 632 on Creative Riding Podcast And I've been programmed to uh, answer all questions perfectly. As big as motorcycle industry is, very few people have actually ever even laid eyeballs on a Confederate, on an actual Confederate in the flesh. Even fewer have ridden them. Did you get to do that, Dave? (laughs) Yes, Yes. absolutely. He's actually in a movie. I thought it was a good book. I, I didn't want to put it down. I wanted to know what happened next. But it was not my typical genre Alright, well now you know what you're, what you're in for I, I do, do this show with, with no more and more clothes on Hmm, thought I would add that part in there Just so you know So everybody, welcome to another fun episode of uh, creative writing Hopefully fun It's fun for me, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hey, listen up i just it's late dudes. It is very late. I was hoping to get this thing out by Friday afternoon for those lovely w i r folks We're going to be with the w i r top in heart and soul and spirit there at the uh, WIR Wisconsin International Raceway up there in beautiful Kakana and a big uh, big 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 thanks to last week's guest the Fox Valley Litas thank you so much for coming on thank you for uh, hanging out with a kooky dude uh, asking dumb questions that's me and uh, thank you so much for telling us what you guys are all about and how you guys got started I right after That episode went out. I noticed that their ride got canceled like on Instagram when I was doing show notes and like waiting for it to upload. Um, I think I saw that the ride got canceled and I was like, damn. So, literally, a couple days after our uh, talkie talkie, yeah, no more righty righty. So, that's bad news, but you know what? I haven't really looked, um, I haven't seen an update, I should not should say. I've been looking at their um, pages and stuff recently. I haven't seen an update for a ride, but this weekend is International Female Ride Day! 2017. 2017. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but hopefully they are riding this weekend. Um, like I said, it's late. I just got back from a little ride myself. Hopefully I didn't get sewer water sprayed in my face. That's another story. I guess I should tell that before I get into the show so as I mentioned it's a little bit late I did just go for a ride uh, going on like 11 o'clock at night now and the street they've been doing construction on the street I don't know what they've been doing but they're digging these big gigantic holes down probably 10 feet down I'm guessing to the sewers And there's water and stuff all over the street. So I just hope they didn't pump something up from the sewer out onto the street. And I was riding and I had my visor open because it's nighttime and I was trying out uh, riding with glasses. Some, you know, just not using the visor as wind protection. Uh, Of course, I have my little wannabe street tracker deal with no front fender on it. And uh, of course, I'm riding through about 50 yards of water. And I knew it was going to squirt up, but dude, it like sprayed up all over the place, all up into my face. So yeah, I hope I don't get like pink eye when I wake up in the morning. Lesson learned. Put your fender back on, son. Wow. I think that's like the fastest I've ever told a story. Here's another quick story, folks. Before we get into the show, a little updates on on how the show's going. I really wanted to say thank you for tuning in last week. And, you know, I got some feedback from uh, a trusted friend of the show and uh, field producer, Brad Viffer, I didn't really mean to go off last week. I think I spent like 40 minutes going off on uh, some detractors of the show, but I, I was just riffing. I was just having a little bit of fun playing with it. Um, try Um, Actually kind of trying to use that as a way to recognize other podcasts and, and people that we listen to. So maybe I went off the deep end with that, but thank you everyone sincerely for all the reviews we got. Sorry if I ran a little bit t- too long last week on, uh, Boss blows hogs. <laughs> I forget. Blues hogs. I kind of wanted my own bitch Paul, man, like the uh, writers on the norm have, you know. But, um, but at any rate, thank you for that. We're going to go uh, a little few couple updates for me this week. Uh, besides getting out for my ride and getting water splashed in my face as you heard earlier, you can tell I'm a little bit peppier. I've re-recorded the the show because I don't know what was happening last night, but my uh, sinus, aside from being like 11 or 12 o'clock at night when I was recording that, you know, I went for a ride pretty late, but also, after recording for a little bit, I sounded tired, which is never good. That doesn't pump you guys up when uh, old teddy bear is there trying to talk to you in his late night, a cool jazz rockin', you know, rock station, WXJZ snooze town. You know what I mean? Whatever, whatever I'm doing here. But, um, yeah, I just don't feel like the late night radio host show voice was working out for me there. I was pretty damn tired. Plus my sinuses. I don't know what it was, but, uh, I started to gulp and and not be able to breathe through my nose, so my you know my mouth was just taking on extra air trying to talk, trying to uh, you know get what it's called respirating, you know where you get air into your lungs and then you don't turn blue and pass out on microphone. That'd be kind of embarrassing, but yeah. At any rate, re-recording this bit and important because I wanted to give a few updates before I get into the show. So this week I got some new riding gloves. I've needed new gloves forever. And I uh, might give a review on those later uh, as soon as I break them in a little bit and wear them a little bit. Right off the bat, I could tell you that they I wasn't 100% sure they were going to fit very snugly because the way the seam seemed like it was going to split my finger in half on one, just one glove. Isn't that the way, like whenever you get boots or gloves or like even socks or something, doesn't it seem like one's perfect and then one's all jacked up somehow? So got those. They're made by Joe Rocket. Uh, I'll give you the brand and everything once I figure them out and and wear them a couple times out. I just wore them last night. Riding with glasses, not recommended. Even, I mean, these are riding glasses and if they weren't fogging, they have like a seal around them. So they're supposed to keep the air from making your eyes water, which didn't work. And also they're supposed to maybe not fog up because that seal that keeps the air from making your eyes water also traps the my eyeballs are hot I got hot eyes people and so it was making them fog up so either your eyes are watering or your face is fogging up or you know you can't see it's like riding through a a dream a cloud so I don't recommend riding with glasses the other thing is If you have a full face helmet on, of course, you have a visor on it, right? Well, I had my dark visor on, so I thought I'll throw these clear riding glasses on. Not working out. A, my helmet's tight because I don't like it spinning around 360 on my head when I'm riding in wind. Um, And B, it should be tight because if it's not tight... If you listen to the Motorcycles and Misfits podcast last week, you, you'll you hear what happens if your helmet's not quite tight. It'll slide down over your face and not protect your head after that initial impact. Or even if it's a full face and it pops off. I've seen some horrible YouTube videos um, probably involved death where people um, did not, you know, their helmet, I don't know if it wasn't fastened or what, but it, it, it maybe it wasn't tight, flew off their head and did not look... Uh, like it did any protecting because it was about a hundred yards down the road while their bloody head was on the ground. So my helmet's tight. And when you wear gla- try to squeeze some glasses in, not only do the little arms on them smash into the side of your head. Now I probably have indentations on the side of my head where, where these glasses would totally just snap in as it were. But not only that, but when your helmet vibrates or jiggles even just a little bit, Oh, the glasses vibrate and jiggle and, It just makes it's hard to see through them at that point. So I don't know. All I'm saying is, you know how it is to look when somebody can't hold a camera still. Their videos are terrible. So why would you want to ride like that? That's my opinion on riding glasses. They suck. Uh, Also, I got a new piece of kit. I got a new little uh, bit of recording equipment. So I'm anxious, so anxious to test this thing out. Um, But first I got to read the instruction manual as with every great piece of gear, you should know how to work it before you just go out there and try to uh, pop a wheelie with it as it were. So I hope you took the MSF course before you jumped on your motorcycle and read the owner's manual. That is the only way to know how much air pressure you're supposed to put in your tires. And uh, I don't know if you're one of these people that pours three quarts of oil into your motorcycle when it takes like a quart and a half. So uh, there's always that. So yeah, I'm going to read the, read the manual on this thing, get it dialed in, figure out how to work it. That ought to be good and great to go. A little review about last weekend. I know I posted some videos up, but I have a ton of pictures and an uh, interview that I nabbed at Tracker Cross. And before I get into this show and talk about, you know, all the great stuff happening now, I do want to let you know that that interview will be coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, there's some editing to do on it. The wind was horrendous. That, Just riding out to track across, I felt like my head was going to get ripped from my shoulders. I changed lanes, and I swear my helmet did almost spin around on my head. My tight-fitting helmet uh, almost did a 360 and took my head with it. And there was a couple times where I looked to the side to check my blind spots and just... You know, I was streamlined with my face pointing into the wind, and as soon as I turned my head, I just feel like I almost got swept off the bike. And there were a few big old gusts, and there was even signs on the side of the freeway that said um, "Gusty winds next 10 miles" or whatever the hell it said. And dude, it was rough riding. Uh rode my two fifty my s r two fifty out there, so maybe on a heavier bike I uh, would have been less less susceptible to the the effects of the wind but um yeah, I swear to God man, it was crazy and then if you saw in the video that was cell phone video and it sounded like I was holding the phone out the window on the freeway or something like that it was it was crazy windy, so our interview that and that was an awesome event before I get into the interview that was that event was so rad I did not get footage of the Sportsters and all the bigger bikes jumping their supercross track. So they took Groms out there. They took mini bikes out there. And then they took the big old Sportsters out there and stuff. And I didn't get a picture of that stuff because that's when I was doing the interview. But as you can see from some of the videos I got, that we definitely spent time around the flat tracks. Um, the drag races, they didn't really, I think they did those the night before. Uh, there was a big Yellow Wolf party afterwards. So it was kind of cool seeing them set everything up in between uh, the races. You know, after the flat tracks were done, they moved over to the supercross track and then they, or the mini super cross track and then they set up the the band area on the flat track so it was pretty cool and i have to say it was like 20 25 bucks for the whole day and rusty butcher put on a hell of an event and i don't know what else to say besides it was just awesome and fun and riverside mx park uh riverside's pretty crappy town Sorry to say it. it's like it's how I feel about when I went up to uh, Willow Springs, Lancaster. Not great. The track. Pretty fun. Pretty awesome. I'm glad the tracks out there and uh, kind of by itself because driving through town, I felt really sketchy. So I don't really spend a lot of time in Riverside. I haven't been out there in a very long time. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just unfamiliar feeling to me since I haven't spent a lot of time out there. But that happened And those three things, my new gloves, my new equipment, and track across will be coming up in upcoming episodes. You'll be able to hear it, see it, feel it, smell it. That's a new thing I'm working on with the podcast, working on a smell cast. And um, so, yeah, there's my writing over the past week in a nutshell. I hope you've been doing some quality writing. And let's talk, before we get into the topics of the show, let's talk about some things that are going on. That are important to us and hopefully to you too. First and foremost, May 5th. That is Friday. Wisconsin International Raceways Top 10 Bikes, our own WIR's Top 10, folks. They will be out there in Kakana at the drag strip, tearing each other to pieces. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. We're going to go into depth on a uh, list of tens. So that's happening if you are in the area or if you're a friend, uh, I've given them exclusive access to the creative writing page. They may hijack it. We'll see what happens. We'll see what goes on. And uh, I can't wait to see what goes down. So that's happening tonight. An important thing, very important thing, internationally. You know, as as dudes, as as vintage cafe racer and bobber dudes, you got the DGR, the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride that happens every year. And, uh, you know, even if you're a girl that puts a fake mustache on, they'll let you go. But... May the 6th, International Female Ride Day. Man, females do not get recognized enough for the awesome contributions they make to the motorcycling world, and, uh, and in a way to encourage them to get out and ride, uh, May the 6th has been designated International Female Ride Day. If you go to motorists.com, motorists.com, dot scom you can get all the details about International Female Ride Day. If you go on Facebook, which is like the new Internet, you can go ahead and see all the postings. We have included some on our site. We have included uh, places like the Gold Coast of Australia. We've tried to cover uh, the four corners of the United States. I know that like every major city is going to have one. Uh, so if you're in Wisconsin, the Milwaukee leaders are having one. Uh, the Fox Valley leaders may be part of that. Um, they may be linking up there. So I don't know what's happening with the Fox Valleys. But go check that out on uh, on the Wisconsin uh, Milwaukee page. If you are in Cali, of course, like everybody up and down the coast is having one within like every 100 miles or so. It's almost like those marches that the uh, the female International Female March Day that was uh, a while back. I think we covered that on the show, didn't we? And if you uh, check it out, yeah, up and down the coast, all sorts of great stuff happening in New Jersey. The International Female Ride Day rally, I believe, starts in New Jersey on the 5th and goes to the 7th. So they're making it a week and long celebration and that is just going to be awesome from what it looks like it makes me wish that i was a female sometimes so that i could have people gawk at me and pay me less no so i could get out on a motorcycle and uh show boys what's up pop some wheelies and uh basically just show you that hey just because i'm a girl and i can uh, shoot a baby out of my body I can also pop a wheelie and jump a motorcycle higher than you, and I uh, make a better astronaut. Fact. Fact. Oh, so International Female Ride Day, May 6th. That is going down all over the world, ladies. Get out there. Be proud. Be loud. Wrap them bikes. Rev them motors. Don't pop a wheelie, because um, if you're on like a, a cruiser, no, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Do whatever you want. I'm not your boss. You're my boss. <laughs> also going on, on the 6th of May, is uh, Pasadena Motorcycle Club, one of the oldest motorcycle clubs, I believe in California, maybe the nation. Who knows? Who knows? If you, Are you a motorcycle historian? Maybe you do know. Anyways, the Pasadena Motorcycle Club is having a two-day, 500-mile ride from Chino, out uh, to Escondido. Now, that's like a uh, less than an hour on the freeway. Is that about an hour? Uh, Maybe about an hour on the freeway. But guess what? Why is it taking two days to make an hour-long trip? I know it's like kind of L.A. area, but is traffic that bad? Oh, no, my friends. It's because they're going to do 500 miles through the mountains, valleys, deserts, Everything that's so great about living in SoCal, particularly where I live, is that you can go from sand to snow. You can have your feet dipping in the Pacific Ocean in the morning and be snow up, assuming that there's enough snow and El Nino's been around in the afternoon. And that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to be cruising all over the Southland, uh, taking you on a 500-mile journey over two days, exploring everything beautiful that uh, SoCal has to offer. And that includes the canyons, the valleys, the streams, and everything in between. It's a motorcycle's dreams. I wanted to make a rhyme there, and I did. Winning! So, yeah, check that out if you're going to be in the area. And uh, there's a bunch of stuff up on Facebook, the new uh, Internet's message board for that. And if you're going to be doing that, stay hydrated. They're going to be ha- doing a poker run. Um, they're going to be doing lots of fun stuff. But it, I, the weather looks pretty cool, but do take water. Don't forget water and fuel. Those are two things you need to, to make it through this ride. Also happening on the 6th. Another important thing for LA motorcyclists, the tour is coming folks. If you don't know what tour I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, the one show, the hand built show, the mama tried show. Uh, I can't think of another hipstery sort of show that recently just happened. Uh, but all the bikes that were making the rounds at all these shows, I, you know, I kind of had the FOMO thing where it's like, man, I didn't go to that show and, Oh, I didn't go to that show. And, uh, Well, it doesn't matter. All the bikes that were at those shows are coming to me now. That's because the Outliers Guild motorcycle show is going to be happening at the Container Yard in L.A. this weekend, uh, Saturday specifically, from noon to nine. I believe all the most popular bikes from Pipeburn and Bike Exif and all those other crazy places where you go to look at bike porn are going to be at the show, so... Lo and behold, I didn't need to travel to Oregon or anywhere else. I just needed to wait for them to come to Los Angeles. Now, it makes sense for stuff to hit this this part of town. We've got builders here. We've got guys like Roland Sands here. We've got guys like Scott Jones from Noise Cycles. We've got Chris Richardson from LA Speed Shop. We've got, I, I, I mean, I'm missing more than I'm naming. We got Shinya Kimura right down the road from me. Uh, all these great. Uh, LA talents, plus we've got clubs like Hell on Wheels, the Cretans, the Venice Vintage Motorcycle Club. We got so many people that mo- modify and customize bikes, old bikes, new bikes, it don't matter. And uh, so it really makes sense for LA to finally get a moto show. It kind of makes me wonder why we weren't one of the first ones to have this, especially with garages like Atlantis and Moto Chop Shop and Lucky Wheels and all this stuff, uh, such big motorcycle personalities so to speak in in this area it only makes sense that we have our own show what else is going on though there's another show that's even more dubious than this show and by dubious i mean just fantastic and legendary and that's the quail and i talked to dave hargreaves from formerly from confederate motorcycles now from uh, Cerberus Moto down in San Diego they're going to have their bike that was commissioned by WD-40 it's called Athena it's a beautiful bike check it out I uh, got some pictures up on our Instagram and Facebook pages and basically I could go into detail about this bike but I won't if you're going to be at the uh, the OG Moto show stop by and check it out check out all the cool stuff they've done to it it's a Yamaha XS650 it's been coated, which is like if you know what powder coating is Sarah coding is sort of the same thing where you can do different colors. Um, you know they got they made their own panniers out of ammo can boxes with little uh, lunch tables that fold down, so you can pull off into a shady spot and pop your lunch out and eat it right there. The thing has custom made racks, all these cool accessories. Uh, all over it. And I was just talking to Dave about them getting that thing ready for the show and all the cool stuff that him and Jen did to prep for the show. And so if you get a chance, go up, go check out Cerberus Moto's bike along with all the other entrants to the show. It's going to be crazy and it's going to be awesome. And I'm really glad that a show came to me so I didn't have to pay for a plane ticket uh, for overpriced coffee and beer in Portland. And, uh, the, have to drive all the way to Austin. I plan on a family trip to Austin, so I didn't need to go there for my hobby too. So, uh, glad that that's going down. And again, that's going to be at the container yard from noon to nine. Uh, PM. So we'll see you there. We're going to go out there at some point during the day and uh, hang out with Dave and all that great stuff. Give him a high five and check out Athena again in person. So maybe we'll see you out there. The quail motorcycle gathering, on the other hand, Dave said, if I wasn't going to the OG show, I would be headed up to the quail. The quail is one of these shows. I'm not 100 percent sure about the history of the quail, but it is basically just chock full of significant bikes, whether they be historically significant, significant to racing, significant because of the, uh, the build or who built it or who engineered it. Um, you know, its place in history. It's just one of those one of those events that just blows your mind when you see some of these legendary historic bikes in person. If you've ever been to the Solvang Museum, I was just looking at, looking up on our creative writing page, and guess what? Uh, maybe on Facebooks, but not on the website. We don't have a bunch of pictures from Solvang. And I just wanted to say that Solvang is one of those places that if you ever get a chance to visit the museum, the owner and curator has some of his bikes at the quail uh, he's got some some of the crazy most historic bikes that you ever have seen and will never see unless you go visit and they're going to be there they got i forget what this particular bike's called but the one that drove me the craziest was the one that has a uh, radial like a radial engines on the um front wheel. Basically the front wheel, if you think of an old airplane, how the propeller spun around because you had like a bunch of radial engines in a circle, um you know radial cylinders and pistons out there and the propeller spun around that because it was like one common crankshaft. Well, that's how this thing is. It treats the wheel basically as a propeller, but instead of being transverse, it's like in line and I believe the owner's manuals are like when you're used to ride these things, the the etiquette was, I mean, and this is of course back in the day before there were a lot, lot of, um, You know, cars at intersections and whatnot. They, you probably had a little uh, the street to yourself, you know, and you would what the the protocol was. You you come up and you'd circle around the intersection until the traffic signal, which was either like probably I'm guessing some of them had electric lights, but either a semaphore or a cop or due to the flag or whatever. Waved that it was your turn to proceed, and then you would uh, get out of your holding pattern. You probably did like a circle or a figure eight there, and you proceeded on because, of course, with a radial engine, uh, what happens on an airplane if you stop the propeller? Well, the engine stalls. So on this thing, the way you stop the bike is to stall it out, or you—the way you kill the engine is to put on the brakes and. Uh, stop the front tire from moving. So once that front tire quits moving, there's no clutches or anything. Your motor is on there. So figure out all the way to get the gas down to the carburetors and have these motors kicking it around the front wheel. Uh, pretty crazy. So that sort of stuff is going to be there. Shinya Kimura has been there in the past, and he might be there this weekend. I'm not 100% sure. But the quail, it's just one of those things where – Whether it's builders, whether it's historic racing, it's basically kind of feels to me kind of like what the, the Goodwood Festival is for cars and for old race cars and stuff like that is that you get to see these slices of history that you would never otherwise get a chance to see. And they're bloody amazing and just incredible pieces to behold. So uh, if you have a chance, get up to the quail and do that. If you're down in SoCal, get over to the OG Moto Guild show down at the Container Yard in L.A. Um, I mentioned the Pasadena ride. What else is happening this weekend? (laughs) If you've got something going on, feel free to email the show and let us know what's happening. Feel free to post it to our page so other people can get to it and share it with us. Or you can go to, I mentioned these guys last week, lamotorcyclist.com lamotorcyclist.com offering you events, links, articles, reviews. I think they even have a shop where you may be able to buy some cool gear. So check those guys out. Also, a sister publication, New York Motorcyclist. I believe that's at nymotorcyclist.com I can double check that for you but check these places out they probably have every group every club every ride everything you're looking for uh, all there online in one convenient spot for you to look at sometimes I look there for uh, upcoming events Uh, a lot of times they have stuff listed because it's local and because it's curated specifically for you and your area in mind, they have stuff that other places aren't listing. They have stuff that Facebook doesn't list. They have stuff that you're not going to find on Instagram. They have stuff listed that isn't a club. So they don't have like a presence as a, that sort of organization. So the only way you're going to find it is by looking for people who know. And the people who know are lamotorcyclist.com. Check out LAMotorcyclist.com for details and check out their sister publication, New York Motorcyclist, for all your ride motorcycle needs. So, hey, guys, we're getting back to the basics of the show here. And one of the, the segments of the show I wanted to do was 10 topics. No, no, a list. the list of 10s, 10 topics. What an idiot. Uh, the list of 10s. And to start out with, On our list of 10s, we're going to start off with WIR's Top 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 10 10 Bikes. I think that's a pretty appropriate place to start off. Uh, If this show goes out when I schedule it to, it should be hitting the WIR group. Uh, Probably after the drags are done uh, for tonight. But, you know, maybe it could hit during. Who knows? What I know, what I do know, is that this year the list is going to get turned upside down on its head. I've been seeing... Pictures and if, like I, I mentioned uh, in the last time I recorded this, if you go to the WIR top 10 Facebook page, you will just see the shit talking for months and months. And last season, we were clued in by uh, Mr. Singh Sime, and I think Mr. Gomeyer also told us that listen, all the smack talk and bench racing goes on and on and on and on. And then the closer it gets to race day, the quieter people get, the more anxious people get more excited people get, and the more fearful people get. Uh, Afraid that their bike's not going to work, afraid that their parts aren't going to come in. People spend all winter eating tacos and Doritos, and then, wham, race day comes, and guess what? I forgot this part for my bike, or this part hasn't come in yet. So I've been checking the Facebook pages, and some people are a little frustrated. Some people are a little excited. Some people are a little bit of both. It's kind of like, uh, well, let's not get into what it's like. Let's just talk about the list. Uh, Basically, we're going to do a rundown. Mr. Goldmeyer has updated the list, and basically, I'm going to give you the name of the bike and the position, and then we'll talk about the bench racing that's been going on in the meantime. In the top 10 list for the RSD, this is not the stock wheelbase class. This is like the senior class. We have Pocket Change in first spot. I think that's Guy Bellinger's bike. In second spot, we have Michelle on blue. Third spot, we have Cheap Trick, which is Chris Singstime. <laughs> Singstime? Mr. Singstime. Fourth spot is Junkyard Dog. Jason Golmeyer. I believe that's Dustin Durant. No! Fifth no, spot no, no. is Big Body. We all know that's Jake. Uh, six spot scrap pile. That's Durant. Durant. Could be Goldmeyer. No, get what his bike's called. Uh, Maybe Goldmeyer's junkyard dog. Who knows? Yes. Uh, At any rate, in spot seven we have Dylan, and there's like nineteen Dylans and Justins, right? I think this is Dylan Pulley. Uh, in eighth spot we have Jade. Ninth spot Betty White. In 10th spot, Busa John. And on deck, Minich. That's Christopher Minich. So Michelle's going to be calling out Guy for first spot. And how, how it works, if you go to the WIR's top 10 list page, you can get a little breakdown of how the rules work. Basically... Um, I'm going to run this down for you really quick. Basically, the top 10 bikes, it's a quarter mile pro tree. Anything goes. The top 10 stock wheelbase bikes is the quarter mile pro tree. The bike has to be stock wheelbase for your year and model. No wheelie bars, none of that junk, right? And you have to own the bike that you're riding. So... When you call out somebody, you can call them out at the track, face-to-face, or on this page, and, you know, it'll run through the moderators, and usually it's like Jason and Aaron, and uh, from what I've read, um, somebody else is going to be helping out, because Jason is still at home waiting for parts as of the last time I read this, and they're a little bit ahead of me, so I don't know if the mailman has showed up yet or not, but let's run down this procedure. So basically, you have your call-out set up, and I think you can make some rules like let's run off the trailer and whatnot. But first off, the call-outs have to be done on the page or face-to-face. After a call-out has been made, you notify Jason or the Top 10 uh, Bikes or Aaron for this Top 10 Stock Wheelbase Bikes to make the call-out official. The two race, and the winner of that spot gets to call out the next spot ahead of them, so you can keep advancing and falling down the tree or up the tree as it is and basically uh before the spot below you calls you out you're allowed to call up the person in front of you unless there's a callback now a callback is allowed if you need to defend the spot and you lose um so that's going to happen and then if you want to call out like the number 10 spot you'll be on deck and you'll get their chance You know, after if the number 10 spots called somebody, uh, you know, number nine out, they'll get to race that race. And uh, if they lose or number nine flips back to 10, I'm guessing the on deck person gets to go at that point. So uh, a no show or breakage will be treated like you are present and able to race, but uh, didn't show up in the lanes. You lose that round and the person below you can call you out and then get your spot on the next round. So you need to show up or you drop a spot for every race that goes on and every call out that goes on you. You can bet it's not mandatory or even encouraged, And but those Dorito bets, I can tell you what, they race for bags of Doritos. Some of these Doritos are not even uh, you know available in other parts of the world. They are only like top 10 Wisconsin list available Doritos and they're flavors like Brondo, uh, Blow Off Valve, and coolant spray, all these crazy cool flavors of Doritos that they have and that they race for. And they treat Doritos more like uh, gold, like the, you know, than actual money. They don't care about money. You can't eat money from at least where I come from, Uh, but you can't eat a tasty Dorito and uh, spit it in your opponent's face and say, look at this, I stole this from you and now I give it back to you in pieces covered with my saliva. So the Doritos racing wagers uh, go a lot further than the money wagers. Plus, after you just spent all winter building your bike, you probably don't have a hell of a lot of money to throw down in a kitty for a race. But they also have trailer races, which is like, hey, let's show up and just race it straight off the trailer. Uh, that means all prepping and everything has to be done beforehand and so therefore you know you don't get like any little heads up or anything or any like test runs or nothing like that just blow it right off the trailer if it explodes then that's your fault Before we go on to the next segment, yeah, I know that was a crazy one we just ended. However, I do want to tell you about somebody that we know and love, and that is dailybikers.com. How many times have we mentioned Daily Bikers and Dan over at Daily Bikers? If you want a ride blog, if you want some cool gear reviews, if you want some awesome merchandise, go check out dailybikers.com. And check out the shop there, and you won't be disappointed. They've got tons of biker merch for you or someone you love. DailyBikers.com. All right, everybody, it's time to get into the next 10 things that we love. And this next list of 10 things is going to be 10 motorcycles that I find beautiful and I'd like to say that uh, thanks everybody for the feedback that we got during our iTunes reviews because it's really going to help shape where the show is going to go, and right now I'm going to name off 10 bikes that I really, really dig, and these are all production motorcycles, and if you, you know, I really want to get into like building bikes and even drawing and photographing bikes and all this great stuff. First, you have to build a really nice bike before you photograph it. Right. And that's why I'm so stoked that all these shows that we mentioned are coming around and all these rides are coming around. It's just an opportunity for you to get out, get with some like-minded people, check out what is going down. Uh, So all over right now, um, you know, through, since 1902 till present day, like I said, the Quail has some of the most incredibly beautiful, uh, historical, historically significant machines, design significant, you know, builder significant, whatever. And uh, some of the things that I find beautiful aren't necessarily some of those old bikes that look like uh, just bicycles with uh, engines in them. You know what I mean? For instance, um, I remember the first time I saw a Zero and zero used to be a little more than like an electric mountain bike really i was into mountain biking and i saw zeros and i saw that the guy was making this motorcycle that looked pretty much like a mountain bike and i think the original founder of zero who was like the ceo and everything who got booted eventually because sometimes an inventor isn't the best salesman and marketer and ceo and luckily for Zero, they booted him out because it kept going on. And here's this new—you know—it's not a Moto Siz or anything like that. It wasn't. I mean, there's been electric motorcycles before, and there'll be ones after. But the first time I saw one, it really related to me because it was super simple. I really like simplicity when I see design. And I really liked the fact that it was such a small, it looked easy to build basically, even though I know there was no way it was, you know what I mean? And the more I learned about I started to get into electric bikes and learn, and even electric vehicles to see how hard or easy they are to make. And it turns out they're pretty dang hard to engineer. So kudos to all the people that go like to the Isle of Man and do the whole electric TT, because making a bike go that fast, almost as fast as like the 600s around a 37 mile course. Uh, you know it takes a feat of engineering no small feat by the way and so the, the, although the zero isn't one that i really really love here's a, a list of 10 and they might sound weird to you okay i mean i realize that everybody's got their own tastes and to be honest they're not even really um uh, but collector bikes so to speak so let's start off with the first one and this one's going to be kind of weird so the first one on my list is the Kawaza- Kawasaki the Kawasaki Z1000 the 2014 one the one that they uh, just the last iteration of the Z1000 that they came out with. I've always liked the old KZ1000s you know they were like the OG sport bike and that's why I think it's really important to recognize that this one kind of harkens back to the KZ1000, Um, You know, it's heritage, it's lineage, everything that started way back then in, what was that, like, 78 or 79. uh, And that was kind of based on their already existing, like, the H1 and the H2 and all that crazy stuff. Um, Fast forward, you know, 40 some odd, 40 years, and we've got today's Z1000. And the reason I like that bike is that it looks like nothing that had ever come out previously. It kind of looked like, uh, well, it was like a street fighter look. And a lot of times these custom guys that do custom fighters and stuff like that take a lot of time to, uh, you know, create something that doesn't look like it's on the showroom floor. And the whole naked bike craze kind of got started by... You know, standards turning into sport bikes turning back into standards because dudes were crashing them and couldn't afford the fairings. So, the Z1000 to me is like, you know, Ducati's got a Street Fighter, Yamaha basically has a Street Fighter. The Street Fighter craze kind of caught on and became what we call naked bikes. But to me, the Z1000 is what some crazy custom dude would make if he worked at Kawasaki and just had access to, you know, all these molds and stuff and made like a really wicked looking. Street Fighter. Another good example of like a Street Fighter look is like the Triumph Speed Triple, Street Triple. Either one of those. Those have a pretty aggressive look, and they just look stripped down, and they really do look like a what you would consider a Street Fighter. But when I think of the old K's, the old Z one thousands, I think of like a CB one thousand R or, you know, I think of one of the other ones because even the old Z1000 had, like, a cowl around the headlight a little bit. It looked a little bit more like, you know, a Honda where it was, like, quote naked, but it wasn't quite crazy and out there. Like, imagine you know, like, when the FC10 showed up on pages of magazines and stuff, everybody was like, what the heck? It looks like a transformer. It looks crazy. You know, when things have this crazy face on them, they look nuts. So, in the 20 2014 z1000 showed up it looked like a mix between a snake because of the way the head lays back it just looked like some crazy serpent and it's not so much that it's like a beautifully crafted bike and the lines are flowing and art deco because it's obviously none of that it looks more like evil and wicked and even the pictures on the internet might not do it justice and so I feel like they got a Street Fighter perfect with like a if you just it embodies power, you know what I mean? And like I said, it's not like the most beautiful and swoopy and antique-looking bike, but that's the thing. It is like the modern embodiment of what it is to be powerful, and the motor is like part, a huge part of. The, what you what you look at when you see it from the side and that face when you see it from the front. You just feel something. And sometimes the, when you're looking at an internet picture, it doesn't really do things justice. But when you see it in person, because I rolled up on one of these on the street one time and my motorcycle practically melted underneath me when it saw this thing. It's just, it looked beautiful from behind. It sounded beautiful. It's got like the dual... Uh, crazy looking dual pipes on both sides. So I don't know. There's just something about that bike that really looks cool to me. And when you think of, you know, what oh, what's what do you like that's that's a an iconic looking bike, sometimes people think, well, way back to the motorcycle's heritage, but I'm looking like This bike kind of, to me, is like what the future of, you know, what motorcycling looks like. Because you look all the way back to the original uh, KZ1000, and then you look through all these other ones that have come through the line. And then you see this one, and I feel like this one really has... Come full circle as to what, I don't know, just what power and what those original sport bikes started out as and the feeling they gave you. This is what that feeling looks like in person. So that's why I like the Z1000. Um, let's move on from that. I know I'm blabbing on about it quite a bit when we have nine more to go. So let's move on to the next one. Number two in my spot, and I'm not even, I don't even know 100% when these came out, but the Triumph T100 Black. This is another bike that, to me, looks when I see them in person, they look beautiful. Now, I like Triumphs. I like the fact that Triumph has like a really rich heritage in the old Cafe Racer and and the Bonnie, just the whole Bonneville line. They've kind of kept those looking good. Similar to a Harley-Davidson, I guess, but not... You know, Harley-Davidson just kind of did it weird. I I don't know why I don't like Harley-Davidson as much as I like Triumph, and they're Basically the same thing. They're heritage bikes. I just feel like the Bonneville kind of still looks like a sporty old motorcycle from back in the day where Harleys have tried to go all around and uh, prove that they are, are vintage, even though they're modern. You know what I mean? I feel like the Bonnevilles have done it pretty well. And then they're not They don't claim to be anything that they're not. You know, they're not trying to be a, an actual cafe racer, but people grab them and cafe racer them out. I mean, if you want a Thruxton or something like that, that's your factory cafe racer and stuff like that. So the T100s, they just look tough and they look cool and they look like something Steve McQueen would still ride around if they were around back when he, you know, was, was, uh, still riding or if he was who he is today back then. Back then, who he is today, however, that works out in the time space continuum. I feel like he would be right at home and selling T100s like hotcakes if he was still around. Um, so that's like I said, I've seen him in person and they just look so beautiful. And then they're kind of got that blacked out thing that all, all the murdered out stuff has that is so cool. And the reason why everything getting murdered out was like a trend and why a lot of times the Harley Davidson S stuff, you know, all, all that gets the black treatment. It just, it looks so cool. So the T100 black is no exception. Triumphs look pretty cool as they are. And it's hard sometimes to tell. I rolled up on one a few years ago um, on my bike and I asked the guy, I think it was in 09 and I asked the guy what year it was. Uh, thinking it was you know like an 80s or 70s, and he said, "Oh, it's a 09." So I mean, doing a great job of looking the the business, but then you throw that blacked out part in there, and it's like, oh, that that looks vintage. It looks like it rolled right out of the 70s. Works like a a, a 2000 you know 20s bike, but just has that little extra piece of I don't know, cool and tough and just visually pleasing, that whole aesthetic, the T100 Black. so you know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those bikes that's literally so cool. You ride it out the showroom floor, and it looks like you've spent thousands of bucks blacking it out and turning it into your perfect ride. So that's why the T100 Black is my number two bike. The number three bike on my list. This might be kind of funny, but it's a Buell. Uh, xB twelve hundred CG when I first started working in the field that I work in, uh, Buell was one of those manufacturers that you just popped out to me right away and it was like, Whoa, what are these?" And the XB9s and the XB12s looked so cool. I've always admired bikes that have dual headlights and especially round ones. It reminds me of like a old Datsun 510s or, you know, old Toyotas and, and the, I don't know if they were ever here, like the Ford Capri's were here. Uh, but you know, those old cool small stuff with round headlights, it's sporty. You know what I mean? And it kind of, Buck the trend of like the square headlights and stuff like that. Of course, now sport bikes just have any other shape but round or square. I mean, it's like all sport bikes have like the craziest shaped headlights you could think of. Um, But the round ones are the ones I loved. And, you know, the Buells, no exception that and when i found out that the fuel was in the frame and the oil tank was in the swing arm i just started thinking holy cow who is this guy that designed all this stuff you know what i mean and before that i wasn't into i was into doing whatever i wasn't into like the history of stuff and even how stuff was put together you know i liked wrenching on stuff but it didn't you know it wasn't about all the design and stuff until I actually started working with motorcycles and looking at the stuff like this that blew me away. And the ZTL brakes, I mean everything looked so unique about these that it was just nuts to me how cool Buells were. Another thing that Buells had that was pretty unique and I haven't seen on any sport bike since was the uh windscreens of course they came colored. A lot of right around this time period, a lot of the GXX GSXR's and stuff had windscreens that were like solid colors and so you didn't ever look through them. So that was kind of interesting, but the buels were all translucent and they were came in colors like blues and oranges and yellows and all these crazy rad colors that that's where the bike got its color, its basically its color from. And the airbox cover also since the fuel was in the frame looked like the fuel tank. You know what I mean? So that blew me away. And the fact that some of those uh, airbox covers came in the same translucent colors as the windscreen, that meant you could basically look down and watch your throttle bodies actuate as you gave it gas. And then back on the tail where the uh, taillight came out, and this is one of the first ones too, where I noticed that the extension had the, uh, license plate lamp and the turn signals on it rather than having a big tail light sticking off of it back there. You know, I really don't like a lot of the eight, some of the eighties and nineties, and even I guess two thousands bikes where the tail lights were integrated into the back bodywork. And then, you know, the, the, uh, what the, I forget what bike it is. I think it's a, it might be one of the Hondas or one of the Suzuki's where the tail light and the turn signals are all integrated into the back part of the butt and so you got like the taillight and then these two bubbles on the side where the the uh, turn signals are. I thought that was so ugly so when I see these Buells and what nowadays everybody tries to build custom bikes like where the, the tail just ends, you know what I mean and there is no fender. The fender was down on the swing arm, it was basically just like a splash guard, right? And then you just have this extension sticking out. Well, then, like the SV650 had that stuff. Uh, there was other stuff that came along later that had tails just like that. And you get get, get an eliminator and get a little tail tidy. And Buells are coming off the line like this. But that translucent windscreen... Uh, airbox cover. And right there, there was like a little, I don't know if you, if you could have carried stuff on it or not, but there was like this little translucent piece back there by the taillights and stuff that all matched. And that was like the color of your bike. Cause other than that, it was just the color of the frame, you know? And it had the, like I said before, the oil in the swing arm and all the stuff. And I just thought, dude, that's so cool. You can look down while you're revving your bike, look through that translucent airbox cover and see the butterflies moving while you're, you know, giving it throttle. It's <laughs> such a rad, such a rad design. And then all the uh, XBs had little uh, add-ons to it, like the uh, XB12 uh something something L, the xb 1200 I forget what the hell the middle numbers are. I haven't looked at a Buell info in so long that I've, pardon me, I forget, you know, what they look like, but they always had like an L or an S or a CG. And the CG was the stood for center of gravity. And that was the one Buell that had, uh, you know, the, the, Exhaust stuck up under there and that didn't stick off the side like a can, you know, and, and Buell was one of the ones that made this style of exhaust popular because their exhaust came down and ended right there underneath the bike. They didn't necessarily stick off the side, which is how every single bike, like if you look like a C, at a CB, uh, like the F4i or the, the RC51s or even the CBRs. And the GSXRs all had these pipes sticking way off the side, shooting out. If they didn't come out under seat, they came out on the side, and they were an integral part of how people designed the bike to look. They looked, you know, they had these cans sticking off there. Uh, heaven forbid, like the the B King, the Suzuki B King, just had these gigantic jet transformer looking exhausts out the back. Uh, and that's, you know, shows you right there. People used to design the exhausts to be part of the look of the bike. But what Buell did was hide it and he hid it in this little thing right underneath the engine of the bike and the belly pan and it just shot out the side. No extra Space no extra room kept the bike compact from side to side increasing the lean angle but also lowered the center of gravity and that's why the xB uh, 1200 cg uh, stood for center of gravity and it's it's because that bike had everything right there all low it it actually the way it was designed if I remember correctly was that it had everything centrally located there as and moved in as far as it could compared to the other bules even even the X. XB9 and XB12s that existed with most of the same stuff. This one had a shorter wheelbase, I think. Had the uh, everything underslung right there, um, and of course, you know, the fuel in the frame and the oil in the uh, swing arm was supposed to keep all that weight in uh, as close to the engine as it could get, rather than having it flop around up at the top there. Uh, one thing is, you know, a lot of people either loved or hated the Buells because of the brakes. Sucked, I guess, um, if you were going racing, but if you're not going racing, it's kind of like having radial or axial mounted brakes. You're never going to feel it unless you're pushing that bike to the edge 100% of the time fighting for laps, lap times at, you know, over 150, 160, 180 miles an hour. So... A lot of the complaints I feel like were unwarranted, you know, the fuel sloshing over. I feel like those are the type of stuff that if you are a track day rider, sure, you could complain about that. And, uh, Buell made the CG to kind of remedy some of those complaints. So that one, just from a design standpoint, just from a, you know, the way it looked, the way all bikes nowadays, you look at the new FZ09 that just came out, that was reintroduced and it doesn't have like even a tail. It has like the taillight and everything down there on the swing arm for Pete's sake. There's like nothing up there on the butt, you know, uh, it just, ends and that's was started kinda by Buell. The ZTL, I know it never took off, but that's something that Buell started that is unique to Buell's. Um those airbox covers since the fuel was in the frame. Now a lot of bikes that have uh you know clear or different colored windscreens and air boxes like that can be attributed to Buell. So I feel like the those bikes, they still look sexy. They still look cool. And when you see one, you still go, man, even even if they did Uh, suck compared to today's bikes they were some of the first bikes that actually were thinking outside the box and from a designer's standpoint looked pretty cool and that's why the XB12 has my vote as number three the fourth bike on my list is the Paria 175 little race bike now uh, this bike might be seem kind of weird this is an old bike oh god let me think let me figure out what year these were from Okay, I just did like a internet search, and I can't pinpoint these because these are one of those bikes that's weird. Um, you know, there used to be just a ton of motorcycle manufacturers up until things started to collapse around the 70s. You know, the EPA started happening, and uh, across Europe even, it wasn't just in the States, but uh, all these other tariffs and everything started to happen where bikes were regulated, uh, you know, and companies were coming and going uh, it, it's been that way since motorcycling started, basically, but it was no different. But in the in the mid, like, I'm going to say 1950s to 1970s, so many companies changed tans and came and went. That was like the golden era for motorcycles to come and then go. Um, and I, the Perea 175 is a bike that is weird. I think they shared, I'm, I'm not 100% sure if Mondial and Perea the same company, but just, this is just weird. Like I have no idea of the history of it, but I had a little paria in my garage at one time. Uh, I had basically a buddy of mine, And uh, another friend of ours who you know, who's been on the show from the 59 uh, Classic Cafe, uh, you know, and we all started getting into riding bikes and stuff. I was still wrenching on my autocross car all the time. And uh, yeah, you can bring, you got some free motorcycles from somebody, bring them over to my (coughs) house, pardon me, bring them over to my house and let's fool around with them. And it was just this huge pile of uh little uh, like small displacement bikes and they were super super cool we're talking like little uh 175 Yamaha twins um just the coolest coolest gas tanks on these things and these things had been out in the someone's backyard for like ages I mean these are like bikes from the 50s through the 60s mid mid-50s to mid-sixties and I'm not even sure I, that might have been when Perea existed and when their golden Era was, but I just remember this little like greyhound or something on the side of the tank, and how small these little bikes were, and they they weren't like bicycles with engines. They were no me- by no means that. They were just these tiny little like uh, what do you, what was what I'm looking at, like shrunk down cafe racers. You know what I mean? Like the real deal, and they may have been like Peria and Mondial and and bikes like that they may have just been race-only bikes, you know what I mean? Um, similar to like MV might have gone through a period like that and Bimota and stuff like that might have, may have gone through a period like that where they only built race bikes. Suter, hell, I don't know. A lot of these companies that are around today that are building bikes, some of them are race-only. So I have no idea how they existed, if they were for sale, if they were race-only. You know, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not a historian, hell, not even a good mechanic and at one time I had like a Paria and a Mondial and all this other crazy stuff in my garage, uh, holding it for a friend. And he was like, yeah, you, like if you want any of these, let me know. And I was looking at him going, man, these things are cool. And that's when we first started getting into the cafe racers and stuff like that, getting away from the cars uh, and into the bikes, you know. And I would go out into the, my garage every day and look at these things and just look at what basket cases they were too, because obviously I could see that the parts weren't, there, you know, they had been eaten away by just time, you know, even in California where there's no salt, there's no, uh, you know, win- harsh winters and snow and stuff like that to eat it away. They had still spent enough time from the 50s out in, you know, 50 some odd years of rain where they... uh just, I don't know, rain and sun does does its damage and spider webs and rat nests in there and everything. So I was like, man, these things are so far gone, but they are so cool looking. It would be totally cool to restore one of these and started looking into the Perea past a little bit. And what little bit I do know is that the particular one I'm thinking of, the Perea 175, kind of reminded me of the transition from like Art Deco to cafe racer and the one i'm thinking of has like a swoopy swing arm it, it kind of reminds me of like the paul smart ducatis where it's like all frame uh you know it's all business sitting out there and it looks really cool when you see people who have dialed them in and uh, got them back in their race trim and they just look so cool Some 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 of them have fairings on them some of them don't but they got this little hump to the gas tank, which like the Benelli tanks that are super popular for people to slap on their cafe racers with like the knee cutouts and everything. Uh, these have those and they have these little tiny seats. Um, you know, you're sitting way back over the swing arm, and the frame just had this crazy Art Deco swoop to it, but it wasn't all Art Deco-y like when you think of like an Indian or, or any of those bikes from that era that just have huge fenders and like lots of, uh, you know, crazy design in the sheet metal. It's not, not Art Deco like that, but Art Deco in that it was swoopy. Uh, it had a big bulky frame that kind of was toaster-esque two-tone. You know what I mean? And everything was so simple on this thing. The pipes were straight. There was no, uh, it wasn't two strokes. So it didn't have like an expansion chamber. Uh, I didn't have, you know, a gigantic canistered muffler. straight pipes coming out of it. Uh, the forks were straight. Uh, the swing arm was a straight tube. You know what I mean? That had just had a hole in the end of it for the axle to go through and a, a thing for the shock to mount on. It was just super, super simple and looked super simple the engine was so small and tiny and looked friendly to work on and that's just one of those things now this is a classic bike and it's just one of those things that just looked super cool and super simple yet complex at the same time you know what i mean and obviously compared to today's bikes this thing was i mean this thing probably had less components in it than a uh, stinking t texas instruments math calculator for trig or something like that but For the time, you know, simplicity and complexity could have been wrapped all into one cute little package, and it didn't hurt that it had this, like, kind of cute little greyhound on the tank, uh, like a little dog running, I think, is what the Pereas had on them. At least that's what I think this one had on it. And... Uh, the Yamaha that I had that was right next to it, the little 175 twin, I mean, you could imagine that the pistons in these things were about the size of uh, threads, you know, the thread spool for like a sewing machine, you know, just tiny, tiny little pistons like the size of a shot glass Uh but you know, screaming, I don't know what the RPMs they would get up to, but I mean, just crazy to think about the simplicity yet the complexity of this little bike and how cool it looked and how it led to like what we think of race bikes today, just these mad screaming, you know, plus 200 horsepower bikes capable of doing 250 miles an hour. You know, it just blows me away that it started out with tiny little 175s that still probably would have blown your hair back had you, you know, people back then didn't weigh 500 pounds like they do nowadays. So, I'm sure it would have given you uh, a good little kick in the pants had you got on one of those right away. So, that's why the Perea 175 is my 4th place bike. My 5th place bike. The Bimota Tessi 3D. Now, uh, Before I start talking about this bike, this is another one of those bikes that I've seen in person, and I've got to put my stinky mitts all over, and it was at the Long Beach International Motorcycle Show, one of the very first ones I ever went to, I think it was 2007 or 2008. Uh, I mean, the B-Moto was there. And it's one of the very first bikes I ever saw that didn't have a conventional suspension. Well, I mean, I'd seen some BMWs and I didn't know that they had unconventional suspension with the dual lever and stuff like that. But I think those were just coming out with those as well. This thing literally has a front arm that sticks straight out. The steering controls is all done via um, like heim joints and stuff like that. And dude, you got to see it. If you... Don't, have never seen a picture of a Bimota Tessie 3D, just look that up. Because I think they even had like the uh, 2D and they might even have a 4D. I mean, they've redone it a couple times since, but that was the very first one that I'd seen. And they'd refined it enough a couple times that it didn't look as cheesy and concepty as the very first ones that looked kind of like a Kinetics set that you put together or like some, uh, some kid's science set that he put together. It had been refined. They had taken that initial crazy design and totally refined it, and much in the way like a Briton. If you think of like a how a Briton looks, um, just so crazy. I mean, you see a motorcycle there, but it doesn't steer it doesn't ride i mean everything nothing looks quite like a motorcycle does that's how a tessie is it's like wow i could see a motorcycle there i don't even see how it steers though there's no 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 connection going from the handlebars down there to the front wheel what the heck's going on and in the back it looks the same and it kind of looks like an h on its side with two wheels uh on one of the arm. you know on the lower uh Crossbars and then you sit on the top part and do the handlebars up there, and you 're like, "Whoa, how does this work and that 's when your brain starts wrapping around this thing and you start to realize what a technological uh, powerhouse this is, and whoever designed this must have been up on some crazy hallucinogenic mind bending drugs coming up with this thing, or they 're just that crazy that their brain is on literally on fire with with these you know, how can I do this? How can I do this? How can I think out of the box? But it's not so much thinking out of the box and doing stuff unconventionally for the sake of just being different. It actually does have a lot of um, what's they they they're overcoming, proper you know, writing characteristics with engineering. And so that's like the engineer's and the designer's battle is, you know, and the writer's battle is, well, one has to figure out how to overcome stuff in this way and the other one overcomes stuff that way and then hardly ever the twain shall meet, right? But with the BMW or the Bimota Tessie, I feel like it was like an engineer and a writer's uh, thoughts all came together to make this thing because when you look at it, you realize that there's no – Flexion in the front suspension, and that's on purpose. And there's no brake dive, you know, the forks don't go down when you brake, and there's no flexing of the front wheel backwards, even though you don't see it. It happens. I think we've we've probably talked about this on some of our uh, other episodes that we've had in the past, where when you brake, Technically, your front wheel is getting closer to the engine or the radiator if your bike's water cooled Um, and it's kind of torsionally flexing too, and everything flexes. You can't really see it with the naked eye, but maybe if you were to slow stuff down and really zoom in on stuff or like, you know, focus on one area, you could see just a little bit of flex. You know what I mean? Uh, Like when you're watching the Isle of Man TT slow mo's and they land and you see. You don't see it when you're just watching the race, but when you slow it down and you see the bike compress, you see those belly pans hit the ground, you see as soon as the belly pan hits the ground, the shock wave kind of travels upwards from the belly up to the seat, it just starts jiggling all the bodywork all the way up, everything that's connected together there, and you see that when the bikes jump and land, it was just like that. It just happened. What? But when you slow it down this is lucky the seats don't pop off you know what i mean because of the the shock wave that shoots upwards through all this uh stuff so when you slow if you were to slow down like Tessie 3d you wouldn't see any of that because the way it's designed the the fork uh, the front wheel will never go Closer toward the body, uh, the front wheel will never flex under under turning and braking, and when you're doing it at the same time. So it's like an engineer's dream and a rider's dream. Like I said, all mixed together, and it's like putting peanut butter with your chocolate, and all of a sudden you got a Reese's peanut butter bar. Well, now we got the Tessie 3D, and it might look too crazy for some people to actually like, but when you start looking at why the things work and how how they are and how they're laid out, it really starts to hit you. What a piece of engineering genius this really is. The uh, number five bike on my list is going to be a weird one, but it's the Mako MC400. And Mako, uh, if you don't know, is M-A-I-C-O. I I think, I'm not 100% sure about Makos, but I think that they were a German maybe not i'm not 100% sure i th- i thought they were a european brand but if you if you don't know <laughs> mako had the raddest uh, you know everybody's got to put down for their bike or their vehicle Ford, you know, was fixer repair daily. Uh, I'm not sure what they used to say about Chevys, because those things never broke down. Am I right? Am I right? But Mako's had uh, Mako Braco made of tin, ride them out and push them in, and they are one of the first motorbikes. My my old neighbor, the guy, the very first when I first moved to California from Arkansas got me on the back of a motorcycle cause he had a bajillion of them and still does to this day. Still a great, uh, motocross, motocrosser, motorcyclist and mechanic actually. Uh, had probably Makos in his garage and his brothers probably rode them too his older brothers and he got everybody's hand-me-downs and uh, he had everything from Hodakas to I mean he had don't get me wrong he had a lot of Hondas but he had like Hodakas Makos Huskies he had like all the crazy stuff too and this is back his brother's Probably, his brothers are way older than him. Uh, I think he was a little mistake, if you know what I mean. And so he was getting all these, like, 70s and 80s hands, hand downs that his older brothers had who were, like, you know, in their 20s in the 80s. So they were riding you know, stuff in the seventies when they were teenagers and he was, he was acquiring all this stuff. So that's how we got the Hodakas and all the Huskies and all this crazy stuff. Um, and I think he had some Makos and Montessas and bull tacos and stuff like that too. Uh, but the Mako MC 400, the first time I remember seeing one of these do the biz was when my coworker, uh, took my good friend and I, uh, out to the motocross at Glen Helen and it was a vintage, you know, vintage race, obviously. And he took out his MC, I think he had an MC 400 and he took this thing out. And if you talk about like a box with two wheels on it, riding around, that's basically what this thing was. The, uh, I think it was like the 1970, uh, had just this, uh, the square for a motor. It literally looked like a cube, a finned cube as a motor. And a lot of these things had the craziest heads, you know, being two strokes and stuff. They were totally finned and being air cooled, of course, just everything finned on them. But you look at some of these head, uh, some of the heads and cylinders on these Makos and they just look insane. You know what I mean? And not only that, but they did look like they were made of some alien metal uh foreign to the U.S. That's why I was thinking that Makos were German or something like that. I can't, I for the life of me, can't remember where Makos are made. Should I look it up real fast? Should I be, do my due diligence here and <laughs> figure out where the hell they're made? Yeah, made in West Germany. The good Germany, mind you. Yeah, made in West Germany, Mako. And uh, so, yeah, Mako Breko made a tin. right them out and push them in. They were supposedly made from the finest materials. I have no idea what the West Germans were using, but hell, you know... I'm pretty sure it was sturdy stuff, right? And when it broke, it either didn't break or it broke in glorious fashion. But I remember our coworker, uh, my buddy and mine, Sky in his Mako over the, the jumps at Glen Helen. And my buddy was on like a, I don't know, an older RM125 or something like that. And uh, this dude on his Mako, this old tank, dude, literally probably made of recycled tanks from World War II, just just flipping this thing, not f- literally flipping, but flying it through the air. Uh, and just how cool this thing was, you know? And they're a box. And when I was a kid, when I first got introduced to motorcycles, it was through my neighbor, who I just mentioned, that had all that crazy stuff. And um, dirt bikes, that's all he had was dirt bikes. There was a Hodaka, there was a street or like maybe an enduro or something like that, but everything else is dirt bikes. You know what I mean? And we lived in a dirty part of town. Um, you could ride, we used to, I used to ride on the back of his, uh, three wheeler. And later when he, when he got older and we were riding dirt bikes, uh, on the back of his dirt bikes all over, we didn't ride BMXs till we got a little bit older and we were little kids. He would just cart me around on that thing. And, uh, we'd go to our friend's house, take our skateboards, go skateboarding, ride, you know, ride motorcycles down there on the side of the road. Um, you know, it still is a pretty dirty part of town. It's in, it's down in San Diego. You used to see people riding dirt bikes on the street and stuff back before the town started growing up and getting crazy and big. And actually the cafe racer podcast, uh, they live down in that part of town right now. I think, uh, in San Diego, I'm pretty sure that they are in the part of town that I'm talking about where people used to just kind of ride dirt bikes all over the place back in the seventies and the eighties. And when, when my coworker was a kid that had this Mako, you know what I mean? And it was so cool to see him. I think he was like in his forties at the time, uh, or late thirties, maybe early forties at the time, uh, pull this thing out and just ride it around like he was, you know, 17 again. And it was super cool. But Mako's just because. They're just weird. They're not a Kawasaki. They're not a Honda. You know, all these dirt bikes that have stood the test of time, you know, from the 70s. And you think, oh, the 70s, man. Like, you were either on a Osa or you were, like, on a Honda, you know. And Honda's still around, blah, blah, blah. Well, Mako's was the same way. Of course, they're not around anymore. But they did make some pretty crazy bikes. And uh, if you want to see some ugly ones, look up the 1979 uh GS250. Like, talk about looking like Bender from um, Futurama, dude. That bike is hideous. But, uh, yeah, no, they came out with some cool stuff, though, but it did look like it came from Germany. <laughs> when you, when I think of, like, German stuff from the 80s or, or, like, Russian stereotypes, it was, like, super industrial. And that's basically what a Mako MC400 looked like, just a super industrial, no style, just a motorbike. Here's your motorbike. <laughs> ride it so that's why i like the the mako mc400 for me they're just like a uh, a visual reminder of like what a motorbike could be if it was just a motorbike and no frills motorbike <laughs> <laughs> so uh the number six on my list is uh, number seven actually is the ducati monster um I have one written down here as the S2R, but it's not the S2R. I'm thinking of like the Ducati Monster 821 or something like that, right? The Ducati Monster. One of the very first ones I ever saw was the guy who own or who runs or owns uh, San Diego Triumph motorcycles now that used to be trophy motorcycles. He and his wife had matching Monster um, S2Rs, I think. I think they were the S2Rs. These things look like a, If you think of like back to a Paul Smart Ducati and you think back to just the trellis frame Ducatis, just how cool they are and how rad they are. And that's another reason why I liked Buells, like the uh, original, like the S1 Lightnings and all that stuff. Just the trellis frame look. And it's the same thing. I'm talking about the Perea, how it looked like a, you know, it was super simple because of because of its frame. It had a naked frame, you know. Fast forward through all these trellis frame bikes that look so cool because they're sitting on trellis frames, and the Ducati Monster is sort of like that for me. Of course, we love the Hyper Motard. It's just that's all. Those bikes are so awesome, and they sound awesome straight off the showroom floor. Of course, we like the crazy new monsters that they came out with recently, and of course, we like, you know, they, they make news, with stuff like the Superleggera and the 848, the nine. 9- for nine, you know the ten ninety nine, ten ninety eight, whatever the Panigales, they may, they just they can't do anything without making a bunch of news. But the overlooked bikes are the monsters, in my opinion. The Ducati used to have like the sport classics, and I I swear that's what their monsters were. Their monsters look like little cafe racers, and I for the life of me can't remember if they were the S two R or not. But the 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 like the eight twenty one is just a stripped down. It doesn't look like a street fighter. But it doesn't look like a modern take on a cafe racer. It kind of like does this. That's why I think I like it is because it skirts this line, right? And so it has all that heritage of all the old trellis frame stuff going back like from the 70s to the stuff they're still pumping out now. But this is like a mid-2000s, I think, uh, Ducati Monster and the eight, the S2R was. The 821, I'm not 100% sure if they're still making that right now. You know, they very well could be. And the Monsters 626 or 636 or whatever, I'm not 100% sure if they're still making that. I don't go on Ducati's website every day and look to see what they're putting out. All I do know is that they did make a line of motorcycles that looked pretty sweet, and they kind kind of all draw their heritage from... Uh, and they've kept, they've retained it. And that's why I dig them, you know, from the 70s until stuff they're still probably going to be pushing out soon. But they just don't gain the attention because they're not like a carbon fiber, super leggera with some crazy Desmo motor and all this crazy stuff, right? Desmodromic valves and blah, blah, blah. They really get overlooked. And that's kind of sad because Ducati's known for sport bikes and the Scrambler and the desert, you know what I mean. Like they've recently been uh, accredited with the hipster revival, and people just overlook the monsters so easily. But in my opinion, they are some super cool ass bikes. So I have the S two R written down, but I don't necessarily really mean the S two R. Although that bike did look like a cafe racer, had a little cafe racer cowl, had the tank. It looked like a modern. Uh, spin on what a cafe racer is but for just any monster really if you go peek at a ducati monster from any year probably uh those things i really like the way they've way they started the way they looked and i think that they still retain no matter which one you're looking at and which year you're looking at they retain their uh their look they retain the credibility they retain you know their they they don't look aged too bad is what i guess i'm trying to say they're not like some 80s boxy sport bike and they're not like some middle 2000s you know crappy let's try to redesign here in the middle of the uh, the decade they just kind of hold it and that's why they're overlooked is because they're not crazy out there And they're also not, hey, look at me, I'm a hip, stylish retro. Hey, look at me, I'm a dorsoduro. Hey, look at me, I'm a hypermotard or DFL or a power cruiser or anything else. They're just, they're kind of overshadowed by everything else. They're around, they're stuck right in there, in between everything else throughout the years. And that's why I like the Ducati Monsters. The next bike, the number eight on my list is the Kawasaki W800. If you are unfamiliar with the W800, uh, it is sort of like the Triumph T100 Black that I mentioned earlier, and maybe that's why I like it, but it is Kawasaki's retro throwback that could have been a scrambler. Could have been a flat tracker, has been done up as both, could have been a cafe racer, has been done up as cafe racer. Uh, The W800 is one of those, and I think they had a W650 as well. One of those bikes that I don't think ever made it to the United States, stupidly so, and stupidly now. And they could have came out with this thing right when the Ducati Scrambler hit. And just made a bajillion dollars. But Kawasaki instead, like we've mentioned in the past, episode 44, we talked about it, and we've talked about it in a couple other episodes since then, the lead time. And lead time means you're trying to time that market, and it takes five, four or five years to get a bike out, so by the time a trend is hitting... And you're not, you know, that bike, you're not redesigning it to meet Euro 4 compliance. You're not even paying attention to what's going on in the particular marketplace because you're already trying to look five years ahead and see kind of what's working, what you want to work, what you think will sell. And maybe you even have stretch goals of 10 years out. We want to introduce a bike like this. So we need to start planning it now so that in people's minds, it doesn't look so crazy when it comes out in 10 years. We need to introduce this other bike in five years. However, the chips fall. Kawasaki missed the mark with this W800. It's a beautiful bike. Uh, the cafe racer craze came, and they didn't bring it to the United States. That was their first mistake. And now, when companies are trying to make cafe racers uh, like the CB1100, that's just coming back. I mean, that thing tried. That thing hit in the middle, right at the end of the cafe racer craze. Sadly enough, and they're just now re-releasing it again for 2017. And that's that's Honda's old, you know, CB. It's it's a uh, basically like a, a new version of the CB 750. It's a beautiful bike, but it's sort of like the Kawasaki W 800 is, and maybe Kawasaki isn't as dumb as I think they are for not bringing something over that would have just made a huge, huge splash. Would have left a crater in the motorcycling community uh, because it slammed down so hard in the middle of this crazy trend of the cafe racer, the street tracker. Now the flat tracker, um, you know the even the scrambler. I mean, the W eight hundred is one of those bikes that can just be thrown into any of these arenas and modified slightly and been made that but coming right off the showroom floor just looked super cool looked like the like a Triumph how easy it is is it to go to Triumph and get a scrambler kit you know what I mean how easy is it to make your Triumph a cafe racer they just they have these inspiration kits ready from the dealer and Kawasaki I don't think ever did that with the W800 I don't know because they never came here and I don't know what parts are available here for them uh, were you to import them on the gray market or whatever so so they just I feel like I've mentioned the W800 before just because I'd seen some street trackers and scramblers done of it right when the scrambler craze started to hit here with when, you know, Ducati just came in and spanked everybody for a while. Um, we're seeing now some repercussions. I've, I've listened to a couple of shows where uh, just this week where they're saying Ducati, uh, I think it was a two Enthusiast, maybe talking about financing. So blues hogs. Number one, you know, they weren't necessarily talking about motorcycles, but it's all related. Right. And talking about how Ducati, I think it was a two enthusiasts. Don't get me, don't quote me on that, but I think it was them talking about, they marketed a bike toward millennials. They missed it. Uh, could have been Cleveland moto or wingman's garage or any of the ones I listened to, but somebody made that point And that point is right on, uh, millennials are, you know, they're fickle. Because you don't know what the hipster trend is going to be. And motorcyclists that aren't hipsters that latch onto that are such a small percentage of the market, they love everything. So I, I feel like the Scrambler was huge. The Honda Rebel was huge. It was tremendous. But uh, for the press, you know what I mean? Everybody ate that shit up. And so maybe Kawasaki was right in not bringing the W 800 over here because those, I don't, I'm not hundred percent sure if the uh, Ducati scrambler is going to be relevant next year. You know, it was made has been made such huge waves for the past couple of years, but maybe next year it's not as, as relevant. So maybe, maybe Kawasaki is smart for not bringing that bike over, but the W 800 is one of those bikes that looks timeless, sort of like the triumph. It lends itself to so many great modifications And it just looks great right off the showroom floor. I think it was a parallel twin. So you get your little Triumph on, uh, you know what I mean? So sounds really good and looks cool and even, you know, jumps right into that Triumph, uh, you know, fights with Triumph for that market space even that much more um, and looks just super cool, blacked out. So I, I don't know. That's why the Kawasaki W800 comes in on my eighth place spot just because it's that bike that you want you wanted it to be sold here we're with a froth at the mouth to get it and the fact that we don't have it means that we want it even more the number nine spot on my list is the v max in the current body style and the reason is is that power cruisers have come and gone and you know, we got the Ducati Diavel right now trying to put a high end uh you know, fancy put a tuxedo on the power cruiser. I wouldn't really say Harley has any quote power cruisers. Harley has good cruisers, but no power cruisers. Um I would say that who Kawasaki i I don't think they have a technically a power cruiser. Um, Honda used to have a power cruiser with the, uh, the max the V Max, you know, the Honda Max that they ripped Yamaha off with the, um, Magna. Yeah. So Honda used to have a, I used to ride one of those. How come I can't remember? Uh, so Honda had the Magna and that was a V4 crazy power cruiser. You know what I mean? So there's not that many V4s. I wouldn't even consider MODIS uh, a power cruiser cruiser like I would the V max because modus looks like a kind of a sport touring bike, but there's not really that many V fours kicking it around. Right. And, um, or even cool looking V twins even. And the V max dude, that bike is just so cool. And they had the V boost. Do you remember that crossover valve that the V max had? I don't know if they were the very first ones to ever have that or not, but that thing was, just radical. I know Brian Viffer has a V-Max. I forget what uh generation he has, but the early V. the reason I like the last one, here's here it is. I like the last one because uh the the rear fender, the seat looks kind of wonky. The seat's like a the seat has a front seat and then it's like uh, i don 't know muffin top and then the back seat i mean there's like this weird there's definitely this weird segregation between the front seat and the back seat, okay, and it does look a little bit funny in the same way that the v rod muscle and uh I forget what other one of the Harleys has like this weird like seat and then it has its own like butt rest for the rider and then the back seat um but aside from the seat, that back fender that back fender looks really cool it 's not round anymore they're kind of angular. And I, I really dig it. They kind of look like this crazy Lego piece on the back. And the way it flips up in a kind of a bobbed fender. Uh, you know, that, I, It's not a bobber, but it's bobbed, uh, you know, and, and tipped up like a spoiler almost. Like if you can imagine like a uh, 70, 69 or 70 Camaro just flipped up the, the deck lid there. That's kind of what the VMAX fender reminds me of. That fender, looks tight. That exhaust looks awesome on the new one. And the whole body, it's sort of, when you think of the Kawasaki, uh, the Z1000 I was talking about, the VMAX is sort of the same way. You have this ginormous motor with uh, a bike built around it, and it just looks super cool the name max uh there was a cartoon i think called the max i know there was a comic book called max because my friend who was a uh has gone on to be you know he was a great visual artist and he was totally into graphic novels and comic books he used to show me that the max and the max was this big tough guy that reminded me of a v max motorcycle um max just kind of goes with maximum you know maximum overdrive max, maximo whatever it maximus circus maximus it just makes you think of these maximum and max to the max mad max blah 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 i can keep saying (laughs) sandwich max (laughs) spam max that's the biggest spam in the world no I, i mean you just throw max on the end of something and it just sounds cool but v max even sounds cooler and Another reason why I like the newer ones, that front headlight, oh my God, just the front look of it kind of looks like a Ducati, looks like a KTM, looks like something up there just ready to punch you in the face. The front fender isn't big and enormous. The the wheels look just right. The exhausts flip out. Uh, similarly looking to the uh, the Z1000, how I said it had these like, crazy cans on the side. Um, the VMAX is the same way. It's got these two boomers, two potato launchers. Hell, you stick a burrito in there a, it'll heat up in no time, uh, B, the back pressure will probably blow your motor, uh, and C, they just, it looks it's awesome, you know, it just fits that bike, even the side covers, they bulge out a little bit, but they fit the bike, it's got these huge round frame rails coming down, that motor looks tight in there, you know, the motor just looks so cool, and then the air scoops actually work, and that's why I like the, you know, the latest range, the 2017 and when did they redo this? I want to say 2015 is when they, I think only the last three years have been, the air scoops are real. Because before that, they had these things out on the side and they didn't do anything. It was like the, uh you, you get an old Ford, uh, like 19, 19- 96 to 2003 or 5. Hell, maybe even the new ones are the same way. There were little vent scoops down there behind the doors that looked like they're cooling ducts to go back to the brakes. You know, like an old uh, road racer, Trans Am car. Well, they were really just plastic trim pieces and if you popped them out, There was sheet metal under there. There was no hole there. It wasn't a real grill. It was a trim piece. It looked like a grill. So the V-Maxes used to be like that, but now they actually do help suck air into that beast. Um, Like I said, it's got the V-Boost. I'm not even 100% sure... Um, that just is like a. I, I'm pretty sure that was that X up valve that just it helped with back pressure and it helped with um, creating just the right amount of uh, exhaust back pressure with exhaust or uh, with intake pressure and all that stuff. So I don't know, it was just the X up. I just remember just being like a thing, you know what I mean? The V Max stomped, uh, for the most part, uh, it's a, it's a 1600cc, 102 cubic inch uh motorcycle that could blow the doors off, you know, basically like the Milwaukee 8 which is a 114 cubic inch. So, uh just it it could take I'm not I never saw head to head. I shouldn't be shouldn't be telling you what it could do, what it can't do, but it's claimed 174 horsepower. I mean, that's uh pretty pretty sweet and I think I know I'm just looking at some numbers right here, 197 horsepower. Holy cow! So we're talking like crazy numbers out of this thing um compared to like any V-twin that's putting out like 90 anywhere between 70 and uh, 80, 90 horsepower. Dude, this thing's putting out 196. It's putting out twice as, and, and sometimes like you know, more than twice of what, uh, some of the V twins are putting out. So yeah. Booyah. There you go. 196 horsepower claimed, uh, on the, I just was looking at some stats. I thought I might as well check some out while I'm BSing. you know, wow. So 196, um, yeah, that even is more than what I thought it was. So that's just imagine that between your legs (laughs) This is 196 horsepower, holy crap, 123 foot-pounds of torque, and it's only 694 pounds wet, so, you know, you can get a bagger that's uh, 700 pounds with the 114 cubic inch engine making about 70, 80 horsepower, or you can get this Svelte, uh, I know 694 pounds isn't exactly light, but that's all the all the wets in it and it is water-cooled you gotta figure gas weighs uh, quite a bit and uh but shit 200 nearly 200 horsepower that's that's enough to get some boogie in your britches that's why i like the v-max and uh what's next the last one on my list is the bmw f800r that seems like a weird bike for you to like doesn't it yeah, yeah, it does, um, especially coming off all these crazy power cruisers. and I mean, hell, I like the Mako. I guess this BMW ain't that far off the list. The reason I like the BMW F800R, I feel like it is the bike that bridges the K1300R. If you ever saw that thing, man, that thing looked so cool. The front forks was just nuts. Um, it's kind of like it's not as crazy as a Ronin. If you see the front forks on like a Ronin or a Confederate Hellcat or Stuff like that They're you know the the k1300r had sort of forks like that where the, it was a it was a solid fork that moved up and down on like a sheave joint like a dual lever sort of you know the bmws are, are fancy with their front ends but the f800r standard forks chain uh if you know who chris pfeiffer is he he gets down on this thing and uh does some pretty cool tricks he's uh Stunt, stunt pros, you know, he does stunts on K1600s, wheelies, those things. I don't think he does stoppies, but uh, he might jump them. Uh, he does stuff on those monsters. He can whip around an F800R. And I actually saw some, a few years ago, he did this radical. I think it was like a promotional video or something. And he goes to BMW's headquarters and he rides this F800R from the bottom floor to the top floor. And does like in the elevator doing going through the office building doing wheelies. Dude, it was awesome. So the F800R looks Similar to uh, a you know the naked Street Fighter look that I was talking about when I was reminiscing over the uh, the Z one thousand, it's kind of got this unconventional look even though it's very conventional. Uh, it really does you know embodies the K thirteen hundred R that was the first bike I. Remember having weird headlights and then this, this one had weird headlights, you know, that BMW, uh, off, you know, one headlight is bigger than the other sort of thing. The F800R looked like that for a little while. I forget what the newer one looks like, but you know, it's just, it's cool. It's a cool naked bike. Um, just pared down. It's got the parallel twin. You know, they're just, they make, they look super fun to ride through the hills, through canyons and stuff like that. And they're one of those things that's a simplistic design. If I remember correctly, the F800 has, as most BMW parallel twins have, the fuel tank under the seat. So they're also working with like centralizing uh, gravity, you know, centralizing mass and all that stuff. Um, chain drive, so it's not like a crazy shaft drive. It's not trying to be hipstery like the, uh, the R9Ts or anything like that. And there are plenty of other beautiful bikes. BMW builds some beautiful bikes. Uh, uh, there's so many other weird. I picked. I picked kind of ten weird bikes, but that's because they're beautiful to me. Um, and you know, the F800R rounds that out. It's just one of those beamers that isn't ugly like the uh, 1200C. That uh, that bike is just disgusting. It isn't a huge monster like the K1600. It isn't like this uh, weird. Uh, I don't know what the K the k 1100 t i think was uh the one of the first bmws that i ever wrote um you know did did looking at technical data for and was thinking man this bike is crazy but not cool <laughs> so i feel like the f800r kind of gets out of bmw's pretentiousness and overpriciness and hipsterness with the r9t stuff and just is like a straight up 800 twin like sport naked you know what i mean like they're doing it right they have the s1000rr which is their premier Uh, sport bike. So if you want a cool sport bike to compete with the uh, Ducatis and the R1s, go get that. This is just a cool naked cruiser, street cruiser, you know, sport bike. So that is my top 10 uh, list of beautiful bikes to me. Not very beautiful from like vintage, sweeping lines, blah, blah, heritage, this and that. But to me, these are cool bikes that represent certain uh you know points in history i guess for each manufacturer and where they've either missed the mark or hit the mark or these bikes that kind of spun off of other bikes that really are significant within these uh, manufacturers lineup so that's it for me you know what this show has gone on quite a bit we still have it's almost two hours in and we still have WIR top 10 info trickling in here I'm going to have to edit this down quite a bit. But in the spirit of the quail, why don't you go ahead and email the show your top 10 bikes. What bikes do you think is beautiful? Uh, get out and get to a show. Get out and ride. We'll see you guys this weekend. As always, please leave us a review in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Downcast, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us, leave us a little word there. We'll try, we'll try to find uh, where it's coming from. And see what you say. Thanks, everybody. So you know how, how to what temper, what temperature? God damn it! First and foremost, why am I screaming? I'm actually gonna edit this out. <laughs> This is awful. So I'm getting it on a delay. Well, actually, I'm getting. What am I even talking about? I'm going to get get it live, but it's literally a couple hours behind. going I erase this, what the fuck am I talking about? What they are experiencing. So I guess I'm getting it in uh, earlier in the morning. This is one of those other big weekends. I wish that they, they probably wish they could come back in time and kick it here, and then that's Nitrous motherfucking Chris, baby. He always knows where to get the naws. goes my house.